Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new podcast series. My name is Patrick Tian. I'm a licensed clinical therapist specializing in childhood trauma. In what this podcast series will be focusing on, we're going to be focusing on people's individual's expressive stories, getting to the heart of the matter that what happened to us in our childhood. We're also going to be omitting a lot of clinical jargon and just focusing on the story, not the diagnosis. And we're also going to focus on the relationship recovery process, which is the model of childhood trauma therapy that I do. It was developed by Amanda Curtin, LICSW, and is also known as RRP. So let's get into this episode. So this podcast is going to be a little bit different, and it's going to be different and kind of hard. Well, most of my stuff is kind of hard. Um... But what I'm trying to say is there is a dark side to our childhood trauma symptoms and our issues. Maybe my editor can throw in some Halloween music as I'm talking right now or cue that stuff. I'm trying to be funny and lessen this stuff, but this this podcast is going to be about not taking our dark side so seriously. And we can overcome the dark side by accepting it more. It's what we know of as something called shadow work. A lot of my videos cover the abusive family system dynamics, our symptoms, our issues, and stuff that we're trying to fix, what and what that process might look like. And it's important to feel seen and validated in that stuff because if given the choice early on in our childhoods, we would have chosen none of this mess that we're going through. However, there is also a dark side to a lot of us. There was for me. We can be intense. We can be defensive, we can be neurotic, we can be negative, we can even be vindictive. Things can come out of nowhere for us and we might freak out on those who are close to us, including ourselves. We might control, we might be highly pessimistic. Of course, those things are there too for us. It's part of being human. And I think to be human is to have some kind of wounding that we all have to deal with at some point. Um, this is in directly in line with the surgeons and people looking into shadow work, which is a lot of is rooted in Jungian psychology. Shadow work, as I understand it, is uncovering our unconscious, which is like the major role in good psychotherapy, I think, and accepting that we have some hard things and hard ideas that kind of run us, um, accepting that we have difficult behaviors and difficult thoughts. The hard part is, I think due to shame, And putting on a good image of ourselves to the world, something known as the persona, we came up with this persona or mask, if you like, for survival, and it creates resistance to having a dark side or resistance to knowing about our flaws or admitting to our flaws. Being a people pleaser, for an example, is a persona that we came up with for survival, and it's hard to be called out on it because we think it's kind of totally who we are when that's not exactly true. Looking down deep in an advanced way is looking at why we people please. And at the beginning of our recovery, we are usually really disconnected from all of those reasons about why we took on that persona. So like when someone tells a childhood trauma survivor, I've heard this a lot, that they're intense. Um, It's hard to agree with that because the inner child just interprets it as maybe just criticism or we've made a horrendous mistake, or it feels like, again, someone is messing with us when we're just trying to do our best. So that's the feelings around being told that we're intense. But the reality is, many of us are super intense. I was. Um, We take things very seriously due to that shame rooted in childhood trauma. We might walk away from being told we're intense as like, what do you know? You know, or you don't know what it's like to be me, or... 
I'm going to do better and never be intense again. I'm going to be perfect from now on. That's usually some common <laughs> reactions we might have to being told we're intense. But there is no learning in that. It's just more of the same of trying to hide it or put it away. Um, those are more strategies of making it not true to ourselves. So let's look at some examples. I'm going to go through four of behaviors and ideas that are about our shadow. I'm going to be giving some examples from my own life that you'll probably resonate with. And many of these, these four are going to overlap with each other. So it might be a little bit confusing. So I'm going to be going over the example where it comes from in our childhood and other ways that it might manifest. I'll give some ideas on how you can work on the shadow issues in the form of prompts. So as always, if you identify with being neurodivergent, you may have to factor that into these examples, which can be tricky. I'm giving it, I'm neurotypical, so I'm giving it from that lens as best as I can. Try to focus on it coming from the lens of childhood trauma if you can kind of do that. So here we go. Here's number one. It's something that I'm calling guarded distrust that kind of comes out of nowhere. And it's rooted in really the shadow issue of around trust. So in the middle of my own trauma work, I started dating this amazing woman. We were really young. We were about 22 or so. Uh, and we were in that like glorious five to six week falling in love period, that beginning of a relationship. We worked together at this restaurant, it's how we met. And one night we were going along fine, but she called me one night and told me she needed to cancel hanging out with me because she had a friend who was kind of in trouble. And I had this immediate trigger and told her we were finished like right there. And then on the spot, I had all this contempt for her that came out of nowhere. And there was this automatic immediate experience that I don't know where that came from. And it was just a huge reaction, not warranted for the situation. Kind of tells us that we're going through a trigger. It's like when the punishment doesn't fit the crime kind of a thing. And there is this classic childhood trauma survivor vibe is that I was like, you're dead to me. You're dead to me, Fredo. <laughs> like a mafia, like a mafiosa thing. And and the poor poor woman was confused. She tried to talk me out of it. She tried to reconcile, but there was really no going back for me. I was way too self-righteous, which is a sign of being triggered, very triggered. And as a side note, this guardedness overlaps with some other issues on my list, such as later when I talk about being self-consumed. So occasionally, in the right circumstance of triggering factors, I would do this highly distrusting, angry thing with people here um, that kind of came out sideways. You might have heard me talk before about how our trauma comes out sideways. And I still regret doing this to this person as she was like really lovely and wonderful and was probably very confusing and hurtful to her. And again, we were doing fine. So this came out of nowhere, which is really the point I keep emphasizing. This shadow piece came out of nowhere, came from the unconscious. In therapy, I was able to get help in figuring out that whenever I felt someone close to me was letting me down or was manipulating me from a place of, like that part of my trigger was feeling kind of toyed with, like, I like you, but that has its limits or it has a shelf life to it. And here's the real me. I'm really not that into you is what probably my trigger was about. Um, and I would get really angry and self-righteous in those moments. So where this comes from in my own childhood, I grew up in a lot of emotional neglect. I grew up in alcoholism and really inconsistent parenting and consistent bonding. And as a young child, like in grammar school, my mother would leave for a full day to go drink or do whatever and not tell us sometimes where she was going. And our father would sometimes do the same thing to gamble. So we would be left alone a lot. 
or worse if she left us with him and he was home because he was really a nightmare to deal with. So this would also happen during like things like being promised something like, yes, we're going to go see E.T. tomorrow. I promise that's when we'll do it. And I remember on those days waiting an entire day by like the window waiting for my mother to come like a good eight or 10 hours, like five or four years old. And then the time had already passed to go see the movie or do the thing. So back to the present as an adult, when my inner child felt that others were placing more importance on something else, the knives would come out because it would, it, my body remembered exactly what it was like to be with my parents and their addictions and always coming last. So that's the trauma around it. And for humans, that stuff gets forgotten. Our childhood stuff usually gets forgotten or put away or simply survive through but the body and the inner child or the shadow, it's all relative, remembers. Um, but the kicker is, is in our present life, we can put more anger and distrust and those big reactions onto those close to us in the present because they are safer to do that with than to do so with, say, my mother at the time. You know, We can be punitive, as, as how my, my mentor Amanda Curtin says, that we put this well of childhood trauma onto others. Why? You know, it's I'll, I, I would never tell my mother how scared or disappointed I was due to the fear of losing her further. But we can put that misplaced mess of emotions onto friends and lovers and family in the present because they're kind of safer to do that with. They're going to be more available to do that with sometimes. Um, another reason to be more in tune and more aware of things in our sort of shadow self. So other examples of how this issue the trust issue might manifest. It might manifest in being obsessed with your with infidelity, like with your partner. It might come from keeping score about like invitations or inclusion with people around you. It might manifest in the way of sabotaging, like you leave them before they leave you kind of stuff. Again, think trust. Or building a case for how they actually don't want you. It's another version of it. Or not fully going deep into situations and kind of playing it safe and superficial and aloof for not wanting to get into situations where the trust is like a risk. So that's that first one about guarded trust issues. The second one, like I mentioned in the, in the intro, is around intensity, what I'm calling intensity, taking it way too seriously out of nowhere. Um, you can probably already see how those two things are related, like the number one and number two. So in jobs, I would often get this feedback about being way too flustered um, when it wasn't really that important or took things way too seriously. And even after a lot of trauma and group work, I remember a good supervisor that I had at this weird entry-level finance job that I had for like a split second, and like this great guy, the supervisor, and he would ask me questions about something that I would interpret kind of as an attack. And one day he just really called me out on it. You know, it's actually super helpful when we like and we respect people that call us out on some things. It makes for better safety and kind of landing or, or taking it in um, about we kind of do do things. So it's helpful if you like, it's helpful if you like them when you're getting feedback from them. And he asked me a question one day and I got really defensive and answered it from this you know, place. Think like Beaker from the Muppets, you know, like self-consumed, some anxiety. And he was like, I'm just asking, like you kind of, you get all hyped up when I just need to know things. And we had a good enough relationship and I had done enough work at that point that I could hear it or not take myself too seriously at that point. And even change my vibe around him or my intensity around him. But I had heard it before, though. I had heard from coworkers in sort of other places, and they were like, dude, it's just chill. It's just not that big of a deal. 
So where that might come for me in childhood is growing up, we lived like a lot of toxic families do in survival mode and shame. You know, going to another family member's house who was more put together than we were, you had to look better than you actually were. And to hide the shame or, or hide the condition of the house that you lived in, if you grew up in some chaos and poverty, you had to really clean and prep things for company, despite the house still looking kind of chaotic and neglected. So there was a charge to looking a certain way to people. This is how shame manifests in our lives, you know, if, or if people found things out when you were trying to hide things such as like, you know, domestic violence, um, that would happen or the craziness or the drunkenness that you were growing up around. We were trying to cover up the shame of our parents' lifestyle and dysfunction. So you kind of lived on an edge that carried over, say, into my schooling years, like grammar school, adolescence, high school. You were terrified if someone said anything to you like a bully or a teacher because it felt like you were failing at keeping up a good front. This is tricky how shame manifests in other places. And you don't have to grow up in a family like I grew up. And if you, if you have this like kind of looks good on paper, affluent, you have to look amazing. That's another form of, of we can be intense around those things because you're a bad person if you don't sort of like get A's or look good or whatever. So there was this energy for me is like, please don't let anyone find out what my home life is really like. And things like homework or what you wore, uh, if you were cool or not, or what you said in class, those all those things had such high stakes for kids who are being abused at home. So other examples of how this intensity or this neuroticism might kind of look like, um, it's all actually pretty you know normal if you're growing up and when in, in a lack of safety. It can look like perfectionism. So one way we can be neurotic, another, or perfectionism that is rooted in not looking foolish, another version of it. Being more focused on things like things being done right, like being controlling versus being empathic or, or chill, you know, making the stakes way too high, like what you bring to a party and how you look matters too much. All of those fall under that kind of intensity that is coming from childhood trauma. And if we're not connected with it, if we're not really connected with making that conscious, we're not going to learn from it. You know what I mean? We're just going to still do the same things. So moving on to number three, a huge one here is taking it personally. Wounding is kind of like what I'm talking about. Um, this one is so big. <laughs> this one is super tough because our families often use our sensitivity as kids or just how we're wired as a way to gaslight. And there is a paradox that we become highly sensitive to criticism because growing up, criticism was often really pointed and really personal. It was personal. So feedback for me, and I'm assuming for you as well, if you grew up in toxicity that was really, really off, often childhood trauma survivors, there is often a trigger around feeling like you're being kicked when you're already down. That's what it feels very personable about feedback. So some overlap in the prior two examples that I gave, I took that girlfriend's rescheduling on me that night very personal. I took the questions from that boss really personal because it felt like in my body that when someone disappoints you, it's a message about you. It's a personal message about you. That's what it feels like. That's not the reality, but that's what it feels like. Or if a boss was asking something, their asking was kind of thinking that I was sketchy and now they needed to control me or monitor me. 
all very per personally speaking. So related to that, in my groups, in my childhood trauma groups, once in a while I'll do this exercise asking the group how they respond to feedback, positive feedback, negative feedback, or neutral feedback. Positive feedback can feel manipulative and not really true, and we can take that personally. Negative feedback, which feels more familiar, unfortunately, we can become defensive about it and kind of take it all, or take it all in, which is also to take it personally. And taking it personally doesn't always mean rejecting it. It can mean absorbing it resentfully, believing that they're right or whatever, but still having personal feelings about it. And neutral feedback is really the worst because it makes us feel very untrusting, like they're withholding something from us. And we can take that personally. Like you ask your partner, like, how's the spaghetti I met, you know, I made you? And you're, they're like, yeah, it's good, spaghetti, you know. <laughs> we can even take that personally because we believe that they're lying to us or something like that. Anyway. Hopefully that makes sense. So where this comes from for me in childhood, and I shared this in another video, and I'll put the description around this incident with my mother in, in the link of the description of the video. And this incident was around um, like an, uh, an award ceremony at the end of grammar school. In short, at the end of grammar school, I sixth grade, I got the class clown award. Um, I wasn't really interested in being a good student or sports. I was interested in making people laugh to get attention. And it worked. You know, I could have a bit of a social life and make a teacher laugh or annoy them as a way to feel like I mattered or I had an impact on others when that very much wasn't true at home. And my mother came to this ceremony like half drunk or drunk and she raged at me when we got out of there for getting such a lame award, which was like a which like a which I was proud of actually, but it was like a reflection on her, despite the feeling of shame that my friends got sports or academic awards. So she really, really got in my face about it. And my mother made this very personal, like I was making a fool out of her when in reality, I didn't have any structure or parenting help with grades. It was always, you better shape up and don't be a loser. Like that was the extent of the parenting. And that's a big that's a big example, but a smaller and one of the on the more daily examples where my mother would make it personal if we needed help from her, like getting to a store about getting a school project done for school. And we were burdens and they let us really know about it in a very personal shaming way. There was like verbal abuse, there was intense shaming. Um, simply, you know, shaming a kid for being a kid and blaming them for things out of their control, all very personal that you'll probably relate to. Um, and this took a lot of sorting out in therapy to realize that the alcoholic blames others around them for their highly chaotic and dysfunctional lifestyle and impact they have on people. So some other examples how this issue kind of manifests for others. Um, Taking it personally it can look like keeping score, like being passive aggressive or waiting for your partner to mess up so you can give it back to them when they gave you feedback. Good times. Another is interpreting when you see other coworkers or other friends having relationships that don't involve you, taking that personally like it's something about you. Um, feeling someone will get recognition or attention and you're not can feel a bit personal. There can be competitiveness, you know, comparing yourself to others and having stories in your mind. It can feel very personal um, when you see other people get opportunities and you don't. So as a side note here, my mother acted like there was a conspiracy against her in the world. She took the world very personal. Um, if the neighbor got a new car or they went on vacation, I can still, you know, hear my mom like, must be real nice to be handed things like that. 
Um, and she couldn't connect her drinking or her codependency or the mess in her life as things maybe holding her back from having more abundance or more healthy things in her life. And she took the fortune of others, you might relate to this as one of your parents, if they, if they did this, um, you know, she would, she took the fortune of others or actually that they were doing better in life in terms of functioning. She took that very personally, which we kind of absorbed as her outlook in the world. So as a late teens and in my early twenties, I had a pretty disgusted view of people my age who grew up in better families or higher functioning families and had better opportunities. Must be nice to have parents that fly you home for the holidays when I'm really kind of out there, you know, familyless kind of a thing. So I'm not dismissing different socioeconomic factors here. I, you know, waited tables in several restaurants outside of places like Harvard and MIT, and I served kids who who landed in those universities while I picked up their used plates and brought them more ketchup, you know, and it felt very personal to me, but that actually wasn't the truth. We can gradually shift out of our disdain or taking it personal or being overly focused on the fairness about the world to kind of not caring about that so much. The world definitely didn't have a conspiracy going for my downfall, but it felt like that during the time when the reality is there was kind of a conspiracy in the world about my success much later. So that was number three, taking it personally. And I hope I kind of made sense there. Number four is being self-consumed. I've got this labeled as essentially a problem of the shadow when it comes to ego. Um, we could almost look at this one as the culmination of the last three, trust, taking it personally being intense or being neurotic. Being self-consumed, I think, means to be operating in what Eckhart Tolle describes as the pain body, meaning that you're operating from a place of pain rather from a place of presence. It doesn't mean like you have narcissistic personality disorder. I get that question a lot. It does mean we can have some kind of narcissistic traits because to be self-consumed from childhood trauma means to be in a bit of a vacuum or a bubble. And we grew up in bubbles. We grew up in vacuums, especially if you were neglected. So what do I mean by that? Picture a coworker. You might relate to this. You might have worked with people like this. Picture a coworker who feels like the place is out to get them and they're kind of on edge. They have an edge to them. They feel like things feel very personal in meetings or not being invited to when other coworkers go out to lunch. They feel it's personal that everyone around them comes from such better relationships or better families, which probably isn't all that true, maybe. They feel like the place makes it personal and they get intense about projects or don't trust that the new person isn't going to take their place or get them fired. Anyone relate to somebody like that out there? What I'm trying to say is that coworker is really unconsciously behaving just as they did in their family of origin, say, as a scapegoat. There's that pain body that we might see in somebody else or what they're operating from. Another example, like, have you ever gone to a social gathering? Maybe you're not in a good place. And you kind of assume there's this kind of energy and you're feeling like people can see right through you and that's exhausting to you. Um, that's what childhood trauma does to us in terms of being self-consumed, meaning that we, we really feel like convinced that it just it just feels like there's a conspiracy going on and kind of that people know how awful we are or something like that. So when I think of being self-consumed, it means, for me, it means to be convinced that people think of you in a certain way, when in reality, they don't really think about us at all since they're just focused on themselves and what's in front of them, it's my experience. Another way to look at it is how this played out for me was I had this sense that being around others felt like everyone knew how terrible I was. 
in college classes or at jobs I had in friendship circles or bands that I played in. I was always acting out unconsciously from having this to prove myself to people who I assumed thought I was kind of terrible. While having that belief that it's what people really thought about me, which wasn't true. Another way this played out for me was when I started therapy and shortly after sobriety, I was all about it to the point that I really annoyed people. I had to let everyone know that I was figuring things out and I wouldn't stop talking about it. I had to let everyone know that they probably had terrible families too and would really I would really go out of my way to let them know that. Like that's big. I guess I'm probably still doing that. But this was really different. In recovery, there's this period of being somewhat on a pink cloud or being a bit intoxicated with a new healthy reality. Uh, but being self-consumed also comes with a lack of awareness of how you impact others and how you make them feel. What's a little bit scary about that, it's a lot like our family. So we kind of learn to be self-consumed by self-consumed people. And as a weird note, looking back, um, being self-consumed during that period in my life, that early recovery, was like having a self for the first time. It's like I was trying it on for the first time. And I had an opinion about things and I had a way to be in the world. But it highlights how we can be so wrapped up in our own stories and our own stuff and our own pain and our own uniqueness that we can't really see beyond ourselves. And then as a side note about being self-consumed, what complicates it if we're struggling with dissociation, meaning being in our heads, not knowing that how to really read people in the moment, and like perhaps if we're kind of dominating a conversation with somebody because we're anxious or we're nervous and we're not allowing for reciprocity because we're already feeling squirrely um, about being there or what we're sharing. It's another version of kind of being self-consumed. Here are some other examples of how being self-consumed manifests in our present life. One is, and I really want you to take this one in, this one's super important, being at odds with people. And I say this from experience, as a pretty self-consumed young man, I would walk away from positive experiences or social interactions or neutral ones, kind of triggered and in this like, what the F was all that? What did they mean by that? Why did they look at me like that? Blah, 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 blah. I had all these stories in my head. Or like, geez, that person was totally disinterested in anything I had to say. When in reality, that person that I was triggered by, they might have had something kind of going on. Or if we're at a party, maybe they had too much to drink or we're, or we're just preoccupied with something. And to be self-consumed means to make things about you. It's a clue if you notice if you're often disconnected or kind of baffled with others that your inner child might be interpreting or overly reading from that place of self-consumed pain. Or they're just all jerks. <laughs> that could be a reality too. <laughs> um, but maybe they can't be all jerks. You know, there is, I'm not, I'm not trying to take away a present piece there. But if you feel really disconnected from people or baffled by people, that kind of might be a clue. Moving on, another example of being self-consumed in the present is being overly aware of what others might be thinking about you. We think about it way too much. Being a people pleaser in reading that you weren't appreciated or acknowledged enough being evidence that you didn't please enough or provide enough in a good enough way, that's another version to be kind of self-consumed. Another example is noticing that you feel the need to connect with others from a place of either negativity or complaining or things like gossip. Lots of people do that, but do you notice that you connect with others in a certain way like oversharing or pessimism? It's another version of being self-consumed. Being exhausted by people might also be a sign of being self-consumed, like, um, even people you might want to be around, you know, like jerks are exhausting. So I'm not talking about that, 
But um, what the self-consumed thing here is, is being self-consumed is being somewhat run by our trauma in our inner child that we feel like we have to present ourselves as wonderful and full of energy and doing great instead of just showing up. Feeling like you have to pretend to be social or hide all the ick or shame means to be in that kind of pain body. In a common situation in my couple's work where one kind of wants to have more of a social life as a couple and the other one wants to isolate um, and has little social connections, they might be self-consumed in the way that they think that being social is a waste of time or a distraction from living in their head. It's kind of a thing. So now that I probably thoroughly like, bummed you out, let's get to some places on how to work on it. So what does it all mean and how to work on it? Shadow work and accepting our stuff and accepting ourselves and diving into these issues will gradually result in the following list. Number one is taking ourselves so much less seriously. Um, it's actually really nice, but don't interpret that as me minimizing you or that you have to pretend to not be bothered by things. You've just done enough trauma work to realize that you're just not interested or you don't need to go to those intense places anymore. Number two is you're less bothered or triggered or offended by people, places, and things. It feels less personal. Um, number three is you see the humanity in others because you've accepted the humanity more in yourself, which is really nice. You're less self-consumed. Number four is you don't have to hide negative emotions or issues so much. They're more normalized for you because you've embraced your humanity a bit more. Number five is you're growing into a more immature, balanced place, which is really nice. Number six is you've appreciated that growth and even feel grateful that you're not acting out from those old places anymore. And last one, number seven is you're disinterested in a really good way about faults and issues and what people do and what people don't do, which is really nice. Here are some journaling prompts or ideas about getting you to look into any or all of those four issues, whatever you identify with. Number one is write out the issues that you really resonate with. The four issues, again, were trust, taking it personally, being self-consumed, or being intense. Write out specific examples of these manifesting in your present life, how they might come up unconsciously. Number two is what comes up for you around these specific examples? Do you experience shame or regret or anger about being self-consumed or intense? And remember, the more we judge and the more we repress, the more we distance ourselves from having some mastery over it or some learning. Um, I still feel a little bit of regret in my, from those trust issues or my reactions, but I'm also able to hold space in understanding about how my trauma got me to those reactions. So the third journal prompt is, how did the issue that you're, that you're thinking of out of the four or all four come from growing up in abuse? How might have you been conditioned to be intense? Think survival mode. How did your heart get broken around trust? Think of those issues about being, you know, mattering to somebody, um, our parents. In what ways did they make it personal versus using healthy parenting? Um, like being made to feel like a burden when, you, you know, like they signed up to be a parent. What caused you to have to go in your head and be on defense so much? So those are some questions to there. And the last one is, what prevents you from having compassion for yourself and admission about these issues? You know, despite obvious reasons, what specifically feels hard to accept or admit to these issues? Um, for many of us, it's hard to admit to things like we spent our lives trying to not make true, like the intensity was trying to cover up shame. So we 
we we try to do things so perfectly, and you know it's it's hard to admit to that. Um, related to that, we put a lot of energy into not being like our parents, so it's difficult to admit flaws when we really try to do our best and try to be a better person coming from where we come from. So those were the journal prompts. And if you'd like to have access to extended prompts on these issues, check out my monthly healing community membership where specific issue prompts go out every Monday to members. And there is also a bi-monthly live Q&A with me sessions over Zoom, as well as all access to my childhood trauma e-course work, doing inner child work. Shadow work can be kind of a surrendering or admission to things like being intense or self-consumed. And this kind of feels scary because in our family of origin, to submit surrender or admit faults meant that you were a bad person, which isn't what this is about. You also kind of have to have a good sense of humor about it. Like that was helpful to me. I wouldn't be here if I was still defending against my flaws tooth and nail. And gradually accepting them actually helped me resolve them. And no one died when I admitted, (laughs) I didn't die when I admitted about my intensity or my aggression or my negativity, but due to shame. And working down through to our actual integrated persona, it can feel really, really hard in that way. Um, Lastly, the hardest times I've had in my recovery, I really want you to take this in, was when uh, I would have a sponsor or a therapist or a fellow group therapy member or a girlfriend challenge me about how I would act out from these shadow places with these issues and how I affected others. It might have been the hardest thing to take in their feedback, but there was a part of me that knew that they were right. But the pain was wrapped up in feeling like, again, I was being kicked while I was down because I was trying to do my best and all that is a big, kind of a big dramatic story in my head at the time. And again, as kids, we put so much energy into adapting and hiding things and surviving and trying to be like this or trying to be like that, um, that when someone says, hey, what you're doing there is not really working and you have issues, it feels personal again, or it feels like a failure, which isn't true either. So more maturity and more freedom comes from not taking these things so or ourselves so seriously Um, which is kind of counterintuitive to our bodies since we had to take everything seriously to survive. So I hope that this was helpful. I would love to hear your thoughts in the comments. And as always, may you be filled with loving kindness. May you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be joyous. And I will see you next time. Mm